Major Lindsay in Africa presents Erasing the Stigma, conversations about mental health in the legal profession. Welcome to Erasing the Stigma, conversation and dialogue around mental health issues in the legal profession. I'm Mark Yakano, your host, and this is our second episode, and I'm pleased to have with me Dr. Rachel Fry from Fry Health in Birmingham, Alabama. She is an experienced practitioner who works quite a bit with lawyers in the legal profession and mental health issues. First, Dr. Fry, welcome, and I'd love for you to give our our listeners a hint of um, your experience and background. Sure. So I'll just start with saying um, I'm married to a lawyer. So I've obviously seen, you know, just by by being married to him and different having different experiences. He's clerked for a judge and worked in a firm and made the partnership track and, you know, kind of advanced onwards, um, dealt with a, a firm blowing up and um, now is in-house. So I've kind of seen him go through a different different iterations of practicing law. And I never really had thought about wellness in the legal profession. And about four years ago, I really started getting interested in it, um, part, mainly because there was a um, associate at one of the big law firms in town who uh, died by suicide. And she was, she was someone that everybody really respected. She was number one in her law school class. She had won won every award, you know, at everything. She everything she ever did, she really accomplished, and even beyond that, just was kind of a standout star, and was able to just, you know, through her accomplishments, but more so the kind of person she was. She was kind and giving, and just everyone loved her. Um, and when she died, I think it really just left this huge hole. And people were kind of asking questions and didn't feel like they had seen, you know, any any signs that anything was kind of going awry. And so um, after that, a couple of, of people that I know had asked me to come in and just have some discussions about depression, anxiety, burnout, and kind of, you know, what it might look like. And as I started going in and having these discussions, I quickly realized that there wasn't any information really out there for lawyers. And, and to be quite honest, it really shocked me. Uh, I really kept thinking this is, you know, such a highly educated group of amazing people. And, you know, they go and they work hard and they're put in these situations to, to deal with clients that are um, needing things from them at all times. And, and they really don't know what depression, anxiety, or burnout looks like. Uh, furthermore, they they really don't know, you know, what it looks like when you're too stressed out, kind of leading into burnout, and haven't been taught any of the skills to deal with stress. So that's kind of a a nutshell into what, putting it in a nutshell of how I even got interested or realized the need for legal wellness. So it sounds as if the catalyst for you dig, digging deeper was an unfortunate event with this young woman committing suicide, but that prior to that you had seen kind of a variety of, of stressors through watching your husband's career and in 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 some of some of the contours that that took and his colleagues. So you weren't without context when this event happened, is I guess what I'm I'm suggesting. 
Absolutely. And even, you know, with my husband, we would we would kind of joke from time to time. He would come home and tell me stories and and I would just kind of jokingly say, you know, you guys need a psychologist in your office. Like, did this really happen? You know, is is are people stealing clients from people within the firm? Like, how has this really happened? Those kinds of things. Um, so so absolutely hundred percent just kind of seeing that as a background was a huge another huge factor. So I guess Kind of the catalyst for you doing more more deeper work is, and I think it leads to to a more detailed discussion. But how does someone who's so well respected, so apparently successful, um, go through the process of a career with no one noticing or no apparent signs of distress? Um, what is it that is it that people are missing things or are people good at masking things? How can someone be to that level of distress and yet no one notices? Well, I think there's two things at play here. I think a lot of it is learning how to mask. And I think all of us, you know, regardless of what profession we're in, have to kind of learn how to mask things and, and deal with people on a professional level, regardless of what's going on personally at any given time. And I think lawyers are particularly good at it, um, which which does does tend to, you know, build up these neural pathways. Uh, this is this is kind of the mode we're in now. We're in this masking mode, and I think it it happens where, where lawyers tend to mask for so long that it just becomes their natural response, as opposed to being able to tell and differentiate when you're masking as opposed to when you can actually feel and being in touch with that. Um, I think that's a huge part of it. And I also think just within the, the culture that there's kind of an expectation that not only can you show that you're struggling or that you might need help or even be able to A, even realize that, but, but separately, can other people even see that? I think, you know, I've talked to many um, lawyers that have said, you know, we, we kind of knew that this behavior was off or that it didn't kind of jive with, with being healthy, but we really didn't know how to handle it. So I think a lot of it is just not knowing what to do or how to handle it or, you know, quite frankly, in the essence of time, sometimes it's just easier to kind of let behavior go and um, then kind of hindsight look at it and say, oh, gosh, well, yeah, that, that really did turn into a problem or you know, something tragic happens, like like this girl's, this young woman's death. So if I've heard you, one of the things that lawyers are particularly good at is basically creating a, a facade of being okay, being strong, being normal. And at some point, that facade um, blurs reality of how you're really feeling. Is that, was, is that a fair summary of, of one of the things you just shared with me? Absolutely, yes. And then if I had to categorize sort of the second part of your answer is that there is an emotional health literacy issue in terms of perceiving maybe something's off but not really having the language to either engage in a dialogue or even think through what might be a, a potential strategy. Absolutely, and I think too, there, with that emotional literacy, I think lawyers 
um, sometimes are scared of emotions. Uh, and I like to think of it, you know, as the emotions are the whole part of a person. And so it's kind of like the parts of being adversarial and being able to show emotion that way are kind of adapted and accepted. But any part that has to deal with compassion or empathy, those tend to be harder uh, to connect with. And again, I think it is just being in that, being in the setting where it's not really encouraged and or even modeled. So it's hard to know what that even would look like. In, in my research, at least, and, and some of it is focused on mental health issues among men, is if you look at some of these things you're talking about in the profession, the persona that you have to be tough, the adversarial nature, the notion that aggressiveness is a good trait, actually mirror some of the toxic, toxic symptoms, some of the toxic characteristics of masculinity and, and, and mirror some of the external things that have been recognized in the mental health community is potentially indicative of depression or contributing to depression. Yes. And I think um, particularly with men, you know, when you look at depression rates, you know, most of us know that women tend to have higher depressive rates and that kind of thing. But I think particularly with men, and particularly with men in high-pressure careers, you know, you tend to see more anger and irritability um, and, and those kinds of things as symptoms of depression as opposed to kind of the sadness and just not, not you know, feeling 100% and um, it's, it comes out that way behaviorally. And so I think it's confusing, too, because lawyers are expected to be aggressive when they need to be. And so it's kind of like, are they doing their job or are they depressed? It's very hard to separate. Yeah, it's almost sometimes. as if the symptomology is consistent with the perception of how you're supposed to behave. So at some point, yes. the symptoms become irrecognizable from what's supposed to be, quote, normal behavior. Yes. And I would even take it a step further and say, normal behavior, the symptomology, and then extending that out to, you know, where substance abuse. And so if there's not any good coping strategies, you know, substance abuse is, can be substance abuse in one category, but it also, you know, in the legal profession is kind of expected in some ways as part of the like work hard, play hard mentality. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, the ABA Hazelton study definitely showed a strong relationship between depression, anxiety, and substance abuse. And the guest on my inaugural show, Patrick Krill, who was involved in that study, had the same remark you just made, which is sort of the dependence on alcohol and the, the immersion of alcohol into the law firm or legal profession culture it's sort of, it's more unique than it was in other industries 10 years ago. It's, it, it, it really is woven into sort of the social fabric. Yes, it, it definitely is. And I've talked to friends who, you know, they've tried to kind of cut down the alcohol availability at their firms and they have people that, that complain. Um, people don't like it, you know, people expect it. Um, so. Even in 2019. Even in 2019. <laughs>
That's fascinating because when you think of most of the investment bank rules, investment banks now have rules that you can't have a drink at lunch and a lot of other, other industries, you know, really have banned the quote three martini lunch. And yet the legal profession, even in 2019, seems to have this need to um, have alcohol be part of the culture. So that's that's kind of a, it's a sort of a surprising reality, really, when you think about mm-hmm. it. What is... um. One of the things that, that really struck me as I dug into this topic, and from a clinician's perspective, I'd be really intrigued to hear your, your perspective, is barriers of entry to getting care if and when you understand that you may have a problem. So I, I think that there are so many barriers, and, you know, we've, we've actually talked about this before, but... One of the things I started realizing as I kind of got into this and started researching was I was really not seeing a whole lot of lawyers in my practice. Uh, I was seeing a lot of physicians and accountants and people from other professions, but, but not not a whole lot of of attorneys. And you know we have we have almost six thousand attorneys in Birmingham, so I thought this is this is kind of unique. Um, I think the stigma is maybe the strongest I've seen of any other profession. And I've thought a lot about this um, because physicians, you know, experience burnout and stress as well. But I, I think it's almost like because it's a helping profession and it, they, they encounter things and they have to talk about things with their patients throughout the day. I don't know. There's, there's just a difference. But, but nonetheless, within, within the legal profession, it is, there is such a stigma. And I think just, A, even knowing or even admitting to yourself that something may be going on, you know, and I like to characterize it as just feeling off and numb from everything. But people, people will not, um, they don't, A, know where to reach out for help. And so if, if someone has a behavioral health, it's like if a firm has a behavioral health line or um, EAP program, people really don't know or understand exactly what that can do for them. But even going to talk to the HR person or trying to get more information, there's such a stigma with that. It's almost like they don't want anybody to really know that they're, even if it's an HR person, that something's going on. Um, so I think the stigma and then not knowing how to actually go about it are, are two huge issues. And one that I'm, I, that's one of the reasons I started getting involved with trying to do things at firms because I felt like there was a need for more of a presence, like a more organic presence uh, of someone that, that does, you know, that's a psychologist or counselor, like does the work that I do, that is more accessible and at least at the very least can be a resource to kind of help bridge from, you know, where's what's going on with this person to they can call confidentially, be able to share what's going on and then kind of help get, get to the next place. Yeah, it's kind of interesting because I've talked to a couple of very high-functioning lawyers who struggle with depression, and they're willing to share their stories privately, and even mm-hmm. to to a greater extent than, than before within the firm, but their big fear now is the stigma of clients thinking they might be incapable of handling the matter, or mm-hmm. clients thinking, well, I don't want a lawyer who's going to break down um, right. So it seems like the stigma is both internal and external. People worry about being judged by clients, but they also being worried 
being worried about worry about being judged by their peers. Right, and I think that's where this like emotional, you know, piece, emotional regulation, being being emotionally aware, is like there's really no reason why a client would know that you were struggling with depression, um, unless you told them, or unless you told them that you had to take six months off and be hospitalized, or you know. And I think it's not not to feed into the stigma, but I'm just I'm just kind of exploring the how much do people really need to know, you know, obviously talking to the people you need to to get help, but beyond that, I think managing your situation in a way that helps you um, is the most important. Can you talk about some of the things that you're doing in helping with firms and in bar associations to begin to address these issues? you know, from a, a resource standpoint or getting people, you know, access to care or, or an understanding that resources available. You've done a lot of work on a, on a grassroots level, and I think the, the listeners would love to hear more about that as they kind of figure out how it might apply to either as a resource to their own circumstance or as a resource to their firm or legal department. And I would completely agree with you that it's, it's partly been driven by research and also just kind of grassroots efforts of, okay, where do I see the needs and what are, what are some of the barriers starting to do this work? And what I've found is um, firms are still pretty resistant with having a lot of this stuff integrated into their daily life culture. Um, and there's, I think there's several different reasons for that. And I think it's just important to point those out before I share some of the things that I've been doing. I think, you know, finances is obviously a huge thing always, especially these days with the competitive nature and just watching the bank. So so being able to spend money on something and not really fully grasp the importance of it is is difficult for firms to, to be able to see. It's kind of like I try to explain, we're going to have the research on the back end, but there's some on the front end that you're not going to have as much as you might want to have, you know, starting out. Uh, and then I think the other thing is um, some some people have commented to me, you know, we, we totally think this, this legal wellness thing is really important, but we also, you know, we don't want to be the firm that that is, we don't want people to think we have problems because we're starting to do a bunch of wellness work. So that kind of ties into why I'm trying to do things in so many different places. So with the, with the bar associations, I, I go in and I do CLEs and I'm primarily focused on education, but also um, leadership development. So, you know, doing assessments and that kinds of things to help them figure out, okay, this is, this is kind of your disposition, this is how you deal with stress. What can you do? How, what are some other tools you can use when you're in these situations as they're applicable to practicing law? Um, the other thing is that I've really been doing a lot of is teaching a lot of emotional intelligence skills. And so how, how can you become emotionally aware enough, you know, so that you can be productive, as productive as you want to be. You can also connect with your clients, which then all in turn, you know, leads to more productivity and being able to connect with other people, have more meaning, purpose, all of these things are kind of tied in in my view, to emotional intelligence and um, 
and as as you can build some of those things, resiliency, right? So I've kind of been going into to bar associations. I also go to law schools and talk to uh, the students um, because, as, as you and I both know, you know you can you can kind of trace these statistics back to law school and kind of watch them you know rise with the depression and anxiety, substance abuse rates. Um, within law school. So I, I feel like that's a big area is just going in and being able to, I usually will go and talk a couple times a year about emotional intelligence and the importance of kind of taking charge of stress on the front end. So have you observed in your clinical practice whether lawyers tend to have more or less emotional intelligence than some other professions that you that, that come across in your, your sort of patient flow, if you will? Less, for sure. I think a lot of it is, you know, what what you're taught, you know, and if you, I think, well, I think there's a lot of things. So you're not really taught that emotions are an important part of what you're doing each day. So if you, if you were more emotionally responsive or more emotionally aware before, you know, parts of that kind of get shut down, in my opinion, uh, throughout throughout law school and training. I also think, you know, I think, what is it, 60%, I think, are introverts. So if you've got that piece going, you can still be emotionally aware of being introverted. But is, if that's kind of another barrier to be unable to connect, I think it's it's a, a learned taught thing as well as it is people haven't, people generally aren't taught emotional intelligence skills, right? Not in law school, that's for sure. Yeah, no. <laughs> I don't ever remember that coming being a being a course offering. <laughs> no. <laughs> definitely, definitely don't remember that. Um, I don't think the Socratic method. I don't think the Socratic method is based on nurture. <laughs> right, right, for and sure. it's all if you're looking at only logic and reason, right? It, it's it's hard to then be able to connect back to yourself and figure out what that looks like. But the interesting part of that is, is that the very best lawyers often have that emotional intelligence component because that's what allows them to exercise judgment. So it's fascinating mm -hmm. that one of the most critical ingredients to in making you a truly special lawyer is something that's what I'm going to call not indigenous to the profession. Which um, yeah. which makes the work makes the work you're doing on teaching emotional intelligence all the more important, I would think. You know, it's really cool to see the the shifts and changes that can happen because I think I think lawyers really are interested in learning these things. Um, sometimes you don't know that you're you sh you're interested or you should be interested in something until you kind of start seeing and and see the benefits of it, right? But I think that's lawyers, you know as we both know, tend to become more skeptical in nature. And so bringing in something new is, you know, like like an act of Congress sometimes. So as you're working with lawyers and you're working with these firms and you're doing emotional intelligence training, are you seeing sort of um, some awakenings because of that? As, Absolutely. As people get exposed? Um, yes, I think there's a lot of excitement particularly with the younger lawyers. 
Um, you know, and it's not uncommon if I go in and do a training or two for them to say, okay, we need, we need a lot more of this. When, when are we going to have more of this stuff? That's interesting, and it's actually encouraging in a way because, you know, the ABA Hazleton study showed that there was a higher rate of substance abuse and mental health issues among lawyers that were practicing 10 mm -hmm. years or less than lawyers right. that have been in excess. So I would think that getting to those younger lawyers when they're perhaps even more coachable than they will be five, six, seven years down in their career would be, would be a critical intervention. Absolutely, and that's kind of I didn't I didn't mention this a minute ago, but I've I've kind of started with the idea of I think we need to start with the associates, and have been working on development programs that I've submitted to firms of okay here's this is a starting place, but I think this is this is a good starting place to start right at the very beginning, and you can you can see with them um, they haven't been in it long enough for their whole mentality to kind of shift yet, but they also are eager to learn. And um, I think one of the things I see younger lawyers struggle with the most is like where you can set boundaries and how do you communicate things. Uh, but, but an associate development program, I think is a, is a huge, a huge deal. And I think it can make a significant impact. Let's say you have, uh, you go into a firm and you have, um, a group of people who have an epiphany, so to speak, that they realize that maybe something's off, maybe they need to talk to somebody. How do people get to the right type of help and how do they figure out the mental health system? Because it is convoluted at times. Well, it's very convoluted. And I mean, I think this is a great question because, you know, it's interesting. Usually when I go in and do something, I'm not going in to, I'm not going in looking for new clients, right? Like I'm really not, like this is a huge passion area for me, but it is not uncommon for me to get, you know, two or three phone calls each time um, from someone. And usually, you know, sometimes the case is, well, I've really been struggling with something and I just don't have a clue what to do with this or, you know, who to call. So I just want to make one appointment and just come in and kind of talk through it, figure out where to go. Um, and so that ha that happens quite a bit. I think, you know, one of the things I've noticed as well is as I've been doing more trainings, I'll have more senior partners and other people call from firms and say, look, we've got this really dicey situation or we think something might be going on and we're still trying to figure out, do we pay for it? Do we recommend for them to, but we really want to try to get this person in to see somebody. So just kind of consulting that way. Um, and I, and I will say I have had I've had older male lawyers call me partners and say I have a partner that is really struggling and I want to pay for him to come in and have some therapy sessions with you. So you know, kind of goes back to what I was saying a minute ago about my, the, the importance. I think there's just such an importance in getting to the firms because of those kinds of things until the the organizational structures are more clear or people know like okay I can do call this person and get exactly this help, I think having a presence there is really important. I think that that's a, that is a, a, a really great point, which is that you almost have to have mental health professionals in the field interacting with firms. If for no other reason 
and to show people there are resources out there and that there could be a tangible place or person for which you could start, you know, figuring out who the right person to help you is. Right. And, you know, part of my discussion when I go in is, you know, I think people have a certain view of counselors or psychologists and, you know, some people think, well, we're all crazy. Well, you probably are, but I think everybody is. <laughs> uh, but, you know, what I'm, I just, what, I'm, what I'm trying to say is just I think people need to see that it's a real person that's normal, you know, that does this kind of work. And one of the things I always try to bring up is what are your views of counseling? What are your views of psychologists or counselors, you know? And, I mean, I've, you know, I've had a pretty tough skin, but it's usually like it's a time waster. It's ineffective, you know, like things like that. It's kind of what I hear. But, you know, you and I also know that not everybody feels that way. And, um, and you're going to get just as much of that as you are, you know, hitting. I always try to think about it like, okay, if 50 people in this room are not engaged, but let's say there's five in here that really needed to hear this message, then it's worth it. Oh, absolutely. Any one person getting help makes it makes it worth it because it could mm -hmm. literally be life saving. Literally be life saving. One of the one of the things that I, I, I want to ask you about is sort of the, the the therapy cycle. Like how many people start therapy and then quit prematurely? Lawyers well, quit quickly. And they, you know, a lot of times want to will come in and just expect like, okay, how long is how many appointments am I going to have to make and how long is this going to take? And my standard response is, I don't know. I don't know. We've got we've got to get in here a little bit. We've got to get things stabilized before I can even give you a gauge, you know, of, of what we're actually dealing with. And um, most lawyers don't like that. Uh, you know, that being said, I feel like just as many that quit have just as many that'll stay. Uh, but I do see just a general sense of frustration with and I think it's a real frustration, to be honest. I think they're taking time off of work. They're thinking about billable hours as they're driving to my office. You know, they're taking time for themselves, which is not something that most lawyers are used to doing. So they're kind of going against several barriers just to get there. Um, and it's, and then it's almost as if they come to therapy with a transactional view too, right? They're buying, right. they're paying to get an outcome. Mm -hmm. And to be, I mean, to be frank, like, I think a lot of people get in there and they realize it's going to be hard work and they're not ready to, they're not ready to sign up for that. Yeah, I think that um, when you add the stress of work, this, the, the hard work of therapy can, can seem overwhelming, even if it ultimately will make you better at your work and better at your life. But it, it it does require a degree of willingness to excavate yourself and yes. and dig and and you know take the time to really um, find your authentic feelings, which I think part of the problem is the profession sort of tamps down those authentic feelings. Well, and I think I understand not wanting to be at a or not being at a place understand not being at a place where you're ready to just dive into hard work. And I always view therapy as kind of, you know, people end up there when they need to end up. 
there. <laughs> and there are, there are times in your life where sometimes you just kind of have to keep going down the train a little while um, before you're ready to go or before you're ready to, to make that call to do it again. But the, uh, the hope on my end is that it doesn't end up with crisis point, right? That it's called before then. Do you think that um, lawyers attach a stigma to, to, to needing, potentially needing to take medication? Uh, yes and no, Interesting. interestingly. I um, have had several conversations with HR departments. And, you know, what, what some of them have told me is, you know, we don't have a lot of employees that are using therapy services. We have a whole lot of people that are using medication, anti-anxiety, antidepressant medication. So in some ways, I think the medication fits with that quick fix of I can still take something and get to work and get, get my work done. Yeah, uh, personally, I attribute that to the unfortunate willingness of general practitioners and internal medicine people to hand out antidepressants. <laughs> they are very quick to, to do so. <laughs> so so, I, so what you're telling me is it's, it's even more complex because a lot of times people are struggling and they're being prescribed medication as a fix and it may not be A, the right medication and B, unpaired with therapy, medication may only only at best provide some alleviations of the, the symptoms or the condition. Exactly. It's very complex, I think. And we don't have a full grasp of this because it hasn't been fully researched. Um, but my thought is that there are, there are so many more people taking medication um, than, than we even realize and coping that way. You know, what's fascinating about that, and I think unfortunate, is the prevalence of substance abuse, anxiety disorders, depression in the legal profession, when they're, when they're probably more heavily medicated than we suspect, is even more, it paints an even darker picture, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Yes. It does, and it, it so, motivates me. <laughs> So as you kind of look at the year ahead and in 2020, what are some of the big things that you want to do with the, the firms and the bar associations that you have the opportunity to come into contact with to sort of continue to push forward on this issue and create these environments for change? What are some of your most important passion projects in the next 15 months? Well, I would say getting some of these associate development programs going. And not only that, but really collecting data on the front end so that I can keep track of it over a couple of years um, and get feedback not only from the associates, but also from the firm, but then be able to give them something back that's tangible to say, okay, this is really making a difference. We're keeping people here longer or we're realizing. Well, we know that young more lawyers are suffering more, at least they're willing to admit in surveys and mm-hmm. in privately that they're suffering more. We also know, I, you know, my particular area of expertise is legal technology. And I'm just a passionate armchair mental health advocate is that the dawn of technology, the use of new tools is causing anxiety among associates as to whether they'll still be relevant. 
which um, I think mm-hmm. is a myth. They certainly will be relevant in just different ways. It seems like there is a lot of pressure points on associates that um, does it anywhere from, you know, what are the benefits of becoming a partner? Are they what they used to be? What's technology going to do to my job? Um, am I expected to build 22, 23, 2400 hours? And how do I take my dog to the bat? I mean, all of those things seem to add up. So it would mm-hmm. seem like that is, in fact, the most potentially largest group of beneficiaries from the type of work you're doing. Mm-hmm. Well, and I'm, it's interesting. I'm seeing more associates that are in their first year of practicing uh, as well, and and uh, you know they're struggling. Um, you know, not I'm not saying all associates are, but but the ones that I see are really at a kind of a crossroads, super early. I mean, not even a year in. So, for a young first year associate, what are the kind of things? The, the things that they're struggling? What are the stressors that are making them struggle? Well, I think a lot of it is how can I be a normal human, you know, and, and sleep and eat like someone just reasonably, right? Like getting, let's say, six hours of sleep a night or seven hours of sleep. Am I supposed to not get sleep and take every project? Or am I, is it okay for me to set up this? boundary and say I can't take this on so I can sleep tonight. Um, what am I expected to do and what's okay not to do? Because I think the the thought and I think it's a real thing, um, both from seeing my husband and just the work I've done, but that you are expected to do more than a, a human is, you know, it, it, you just are. And so where that line is, I think is super hard for people uh, and then coming on the heels of of seeing a different environment than what maybe was there when they were clerking. Those things seem to be tough. Yeah, clerking and first-year associateship are a very rude contrast. (laughs) They are. (laughs) Being brought to concerts and then having to stay up all night and write a brief is definitely culture shock. But it kind of leads me to... uh, a question and maybe kind of the question we rest with, which is you've identified the need for associate wellness programs and to get to the younger lawyers because because they're in the most acute pain and, and there's there's a lot of benefit to getting to them. But how successful will those be without buy-in from firm leadership? I mean, to take your example, if someone's worried about whether they can get enough sleep. Mm-hmm. Working with them doesn't really help if the person, the people that give them the work, don't expect them to sleep. Well, no, and I think, I mean, I think that's an excellent point because I've actually had conversations with senior partners about this, and most of them don't expect that, right? Like they do expect their associates to sleep, but there is such a communication gap um, between what associates feel like they can ask and information being available, right? Like this is our expectation for you this year. And I, and I know you know this as well, but just from a mentoring organizational structure, having that open dialogue is, is lacking. And so I see this as a bridge between the two. And so, you know, one of the 
uh, one of the people I work with a lot is, you know, if firms have an associate um, director or if it's just a senior partner that I have a relationship with and it's like, okay, here are some things that I'm kind of seeing across the board at firms. Um, I try to make it, you know, general because, you know, people, people care about the confidentiality and all that, but just kind of talking through how can we bridge these things? How can, how can your firm really, what, what kind of structure can we think about setting up? Because I think it's absolutely very important to make sure that that, that bridge is, is gapped. So a couple of things come out of that strand of thought, which is one, there there just may be a, a, a lack of a common language where everyone knows what, what reasonable expectations are. Sounds like there's a disconnect somewhere there. The associates perceive they're not supposed to have a life at all, and partners might not necessarily believe that. Right. But they're not having these conversations. So it's creating a lot of stress um, from not having important conversations or so mentoring the that, mentor that you trust. Is part of the work you're doing is you know, helping firms refine the mentoring process and the communications process so that you know associates and people within the firm actually understand what reasonable expectations are versus a perception of what the expectations are? Yes, and I would say that is a lot of conversations over coffees and lunches, and I'm kind of always thinking about that in terms of how can these how can these two ends be you know meshed together a little bit a little bit more. And um, I think people are more reasonable most of the time than people give them credit for, but I think it's just you're in this you kind of come in to a firm in a fear, from a fear place and your numbers are being calculated and you don't really know kind of what questions you can ask or what's okay and what's not okay. Well, Dr. Fry, you are in the trenches and you're doing some amazing work and I hope that you will keep us informed as you do more research and as you have more contact with firms as to what you're seeing and what's going on because I'd love to have you back. I'm delighted absolutely delighted that you agreed to be um, the second guest in our podcast and and to share you know an in the trenches kind of grassroots uh, uh, approach to the work you're doing and the problems you're seeing it, it's been fabulous having this time with you and I hope you'll come back and talk to us again especially as you dig into the research and you you progress your work with associates and, and changing firm culture we would love to stay in touch and hear back from you Anytime, and I will, I will definitely keep you posted, and I appreciate you having me today. Well, thank you so very much for taking the time, and, and we look forward to hearing back from you as you um, continue to work on these important issues. Um, we'll stay in touch, and I hope you'll do the same. Thank you for listening today. I hope you found this conversation as engaging as I have. It's our goal to bring you a variety of guests who have viewpoints, topics, and experiences to share on the issue of mental health and mental wellness in the legal profession. Please join us again in a couple of weeks when we'll have another fascinating guest on to discuss the state of mental health and wellness in our chosen profession. 
Discover how Major Lindsay in Africa can help you navigate the legal landscape at www.mlaglobal.com. 